We're in the midst of about four sessions exploring uh, the theme of freedom and particularly looking at the theme these last few weeks of looking at the theme of developing freedom through awareness. Originally, the first of the talks was given right before the 4th of July and I was thinking that I would talk about the more the inner dimensions of freedom in one session and then I take a few sessions to talk about the uh, more social dimensions of freedom which, which are probably for many of us were initially more familiar. They're the kind that are talked about very much, particularly in Western society. It's uh, connected with freedom, uh, freedom from oppression, having civil liberties of speech and movement, religion and so forth. And um, to talk about those and talk about the relationship between the inner freedom and what we might call our more outer freedoms. And I had been thinking about that because of the 4th of July and the uh, um, way that at our best on the 4th of July we think about the kind of the deep social freedoms. Um, at our worst we do other things on the 4th of July. <laughs> so, um, but as I explored that more and wanted to look at inner freedom, to really look at that more thoroughly, it's taken some time. So I think that what I'm going to be doing today is actually to continue with that theme of looking at inner freedom, and I think next time as well, as, I, as I've looked at that uh, area. Um, so I've, I've been talking about three aspects of freedom. Um, one is that social dimension of freedom, which is very, very crucial, one that sometimes in the U.S. we sometimes take for granted. Um, being from Poland, you've gone through periods where there's been a lack of certain freedoms that are now, now there's more of certain kinds of freedoms. And, um, but we've, in the um, traditions that we get through the meditative traditions, the contemplative traditions, the emphasis is a little more on the, or quite a lot more, on what we might call the inner freedom. And I've talked about that in two ways. I've talked about that in terms of developing freedom with what I've called ordinary mind, and then also developing a freedom which comes with, with um, the depth dimension of what we can call extraordinary mind. And I've um, particularly focused uh, last time and the time before on looking at this dimension of freedom of ordinary mind and starting to open up to extraordinary mind. And the, the aspect of freedom in ordinary mind is, is very similar to what we looked at just now with Jane's question. Um, and particularly that, that last aspect, that with our awareness practice, with the development of mindfulness, we become able not to be so dominated by the habitual tendencies of our mind, our body, our speech, and so forth that we bring mindfulness to our um, experience and over time we can go through a sequence where we start to bring some of our habits that maybe connect with suffering into the sphere of awareness. We might take, let's say, a habit that I have of, um, well, can I take your example? Would that be okay? I won't, I won't say... Um, well, I guess it doesn't matter so much. 
But we'll take that, that habit that was brought up that we talked about, a habit of noticing that one talks harshly to oneself, even though uh, maybe about oneself, maybe about others, but that there can be a certain inner harshness and that there is, sometimes could be the discipline or the could be conditioning not to express that outwardly in polite company, so to speak. Um, but still there's the inner harshness and with uh, mindfulness, one starts to notice that. Maybe that some, wasn't something you noticed before you were doing a lot of uh, mindfulness practice. Might just be, okay, just the, we're a little bit more on um, cruise control or on automatic before we bring a lot of awareness through, for most of us, through, through mindfulness practice, through reflection, through looking carefully. And so we start to bring that uh, habit of mind, which causes some degree of inner suffering. And of course, times when we don't have um, whatever awareness of it, we may even express it outwardly at certain moments. Of course, that's, that would happen sometimes. And so we bring, we bring our mindfulness to that. And at certain points, we, when there's enough mindfulness, we have maybe have looked at it a lot, and we notice that tendency happening, and we have enough mindfulness so that, in a sense, we can ask the question, do I want to keep going there right now? We can ask, okay, that mind habit is starting up. Do I want to go there? And it could be the habit to speak harshly internally. It could be the habit to do something externally. That, you know, it could be the habit to... Um, be judgmental of another when certain things happen, maybe to blame others when something difficult happens, or it could be to engage in a certain kind of behavior which is not so helpful. It could be to always go to the refrigerator when there's some emotional distress, whatever it might be. We notice certain habits or patterns, and we first bring them into mindfulness. And as we were exploring before, for some of the habits that are linked to suffering, it's very helpful to have the support of uh, also holding it with some care, some loving kindness. There are difficult patterns. And, and to uh, continue to be aware. At a certain point, it comes up, we notice it, and there's enough awareness and maybe enough care, enough centeredness, enough presence, so that, in a sense, we could say, there's a certain degree of freedom. I don't have to go there at that moment. I don't have to go to that <clears throat> thought pattern, the judgments, the behavior. <clears throat> and I can say to myself, this is happening. Do I want to continue? Or do I, do I want to go there? And we can sometimes have enough spaciousness, enough care, enough mindfulness, enough having seen it a lot of times, to say no. We can call that a kind of freedom. It's a very important kind of freedom to, that comes out of mindfulness, comes out of wisdom, comes out of a quality of care towards ourselves or maybe towards others. And that's what I was focusing on especially as a kind of freedom that's there with ordinary mind. And this is really right at the heart of our practice. You know, we practice uh, to make this kind of awareness possible. We train in mindfulness, we develop a loving kindness, we develop in wisdom practice, and 
we have that quality of awareness at certain times. And I also mentioned that there's another kind of freedom that comes with extraordinary mind, what I'm calling extraordinary mind. And for the rest of today, I want to focus on how we move towards having the deeper freedom of extraordinary mind. I'll say more what that is, what I mean by extraordinary, extraordinary mind. How we have that freedom of extraordinary mind. And today I want to particularly focus on how we cultivate extraordinary mind by working with ordinary mind. Next time I'm going to focus especially on how we, con- how we cultivate extraordinary mind by invoking extraordinary mind on the spot, right there, going there. So, but today uh, it's more like how do we cultivate extraordinary mind through doing the kind of practices that we're doing. And I'll tie in what we did in the guided meditation today. So that's the theme for, for today. So what, what do I mean by extraordinary mind? I've talked about it some the last two, <clears throat> two sessions, and I've really wanted to frame it as um, what we experience with a very high level of mindfulness or a very high level of loving kindness or love or wisdom. And to to some extent, the use of the terms is artificial, you know, to talk about ordinary or extraordinary mind. And as we'll see, um, there are ways in which um, we can experience what we call extraordinary mind in very uh, ordinary ways. And that uh, hope to show, and as we explored some last time, that what we call extraordinary mind is something that I I believe that all of us have experienced at moments. And so uh, the aim of our practice is to have extraordinary mind become ordinary. (laughs) That's the direction of all of this practice, is to have these beautiful qualities become more and more ordinary and more and more stabilized. That's the whole aim of what we do here. Now, one way more analytically, maybe with more, we might say, with our wisdom factors of understanding extraordinary mind is to understand it as um, a state of awareness and a state of being in which a lot of the, what we might call ordinary or um, everyday structures and presuppositions are transcended or suspended or gone beyond. And so maybe, maybe I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that analytic aspect in a moment, but maybe to open to what some of, what these, what extraordinary mind looks like through accounts from texts and from people and I think from our own experience as well. In the discourses of the Buddha, probably the word that could be a synonym for extraordinary mind is nirvana or nibbana. 
And for many of us, that seems very, very far away, right? And even, you know, when you visit Thailand, so it's very, very common for some in the tradition to say nirvana or nibbana, we can't really achieve it these days. Maybe they did in the past, you know. And there's a certain way in which there's a, a lack of that being a living, accessible goal of practice. But it's very clear that in the classical text, this is the goal. And it's most, mostly understood, as I mentioned last time, more negatively. What is nirvana or nibbana? It's the absence of greed, hatred, or delusion. And we can think of that maybe in two ways, one more momentary and one when it gets more stabilized. In a momentary, uh, from a momentary point of view, there can be probably for all of us moments where there's no greed, hatred, delusion. And I think we experience that all the time when the mind is at peace, when there's some degree of resting, when the mind isn't, um, or the mind, the heart, the body are not agitated, not reactive, not pushing away, not grabbing hold. There are moments of rest. And we, we experience those at times. In Zen, this is called ordinary enlightenment. <laughs> you know, it's where we can call it momentary enlightenment. And there's also, and this is really the, the goal, is to have that be more and more stabilized. So that becomes the mind that we live in. In other words, we are lived experience is more and more the mind of love and wisdom, awareness. And that becomes more and more stabilized, so it's where we hang out more and more. That's the, that's the goal of practice. In the text, it's talked about in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's talked about, I think the predominant way is talked about in that more negative way. It's what is, what is this extraordinary quality of mind it's the absence of greed, hatred, or delusion, or it's understood as supreme joy, or the deathless, the absence. Sometimes, it, a lot of times, the metaphor used is the deathless, or it's freedom, or it's our refuge, or sometimes it's called the other shore. And if you read through the, the text of the Buddha, a lot of these, a lot of these uh, metaphors are there. Sometimes it's talked about as the brightly shining quality of the mind and heart. There's sometimes said to be a quality of luminosity that comes with this extraordinary mind, a brightness, a shining, a shining quality. Um, It's said to, um, at times, and this is more in the minority of times it's mentioned, it's sometimes mentioned as a kind of awareness. It's a kind of an awareness which is beyond a lot of our ordinary experience. That's what I'm going to come back to when I talk, again, I'll talk a little more analytically about what it is, but it can help us to understand this extraordinary uh, quality of mind. It's said to be beyond the um, typical constructions of experience, beyond typical objects. It's said to be luminous, boundless. Here, Here are a few passages. Where neither water, nor yet earth, nor fire, nor air gain a foothold. There gleam no stars, no sun shines light. There shines no moon, yet no darkness reigns. It's kind of metaphorical almost. 
When a sage has come to know this for oneself through one's own wisdom, then one is freed from form and formless, freed from pleasure and pain. So those are synonyms for freedom. There's another passage which suggests the way that one is not bound to the ordinary workings of the senses. That there's a quality of awareness freed from ordinary constructions and yet aware. The Buddha asked questions of the monks. When the sun rises and a shaft of light has entered by way of the window, where does it land? On the western wall, sir. And if there is no western wall, on the ground, sir. And if there is no ground, on the lake, sir. And if there is no lake, it does not land. In the same way, the Buddha says, when there is no reactivity, consciousness does not land or grow. That is freedom from all suffering. It's a passage pointing to this quality of awareness and linking it with, with going beyond suffering. Again, we're understanding suffering as um, synonymous with reactivity. It doesn't mean the absence of pain. We're distinguishing suffering as the reaction, the pushing away, the grabbing hold. And there can be freedom even though there's pain, physical or emotional pain. That's an important point that we have to remember. The freedom from suffering doesn't mean the freedom from the unpleasant. The unpleasant is there, but it's more our attitude. It's a really, really crucial point. In the Thai forest tradition, what I'm calling extraordinary mind is talked about also quite a lot. These are The Thai forest tradition is the tradition that uh, really is very linked with spirit rock, that's connected with um, the teacher of Jack Kornfield, uh, Achan Cha, great Thai teacher who I had the privilege of studying with um, um, in the late 1970s. And he talked about, he talked very simply about this extraordinary mind. He called it the one who knows. It's a quality of awareness that is really a kind of, almost a kind of pure awareness that goes beyond self, that goes beyond getting fixated with objects. And I'll come back to that. Um, another person in the Thai forest tradition, Achan Mahabua, who, who I also had the chance to meet, who's in his 90s now, he talked about this quality as the eternal quality. He called it the eternal citta, C-I-T-T-A, which is the, the word for, we might say, for mind or heart. So he called it the eternal Chita. Um, Achan Samedo, um, an American who was a student of Achan Cha, talked about it as natural consciousness, kind of a natural consciousness. It, it's um, very linked to, in the um, Tibetan tradition, it's sometimes called the natural state. I thought I'd just read a few more passages from, from um, also from the Tibetan tradition. Let's see. Um, here are a few from, this is a, a beautiful text from a 14th century teacher named Long Chenpa. And these are some passages about this state of awareness. Sensory appearances are unrestricted. Awareness is evident and naturally occurring. Since the genuine state of uncontrived rest is unobscured and unobstructed, 
with no division into inner and outer states, it is evident as the supreme nature of phenomena. Let your mind and body relax deeply in a carefree state with an easygoing attitude like a person who has nothing more to do. Rest your mind and body. Or lest your, uh, let your mind and body rest in whatever way is comfortable, neither tense nor loose. And then some other passages here. Within the very state that is the vast expanse of awakened mind, the concepts of ordinary thinking do not occur. If the characteristics of ordinary consciousness do not stir in the mind, that itself is enlightened intent, the unique state of Buddhahood. And then maybe one more passage. The nature of enlightened mind is similar to the spacious vault of the sky. The most sublime form of meditation involves no recollection or thinking. One's nature is unwavering and uncontrived, unplanned and completely free of the formation of ideas. The true nature of phenomena, the naturally settled state, is without transition or change through the three times. The most sublime form of meditation involves no stirring or proliferation of all consuming thoughts. So this was this whole book, this is called The Precious Treasury of the Basic Space of Phenomena. <laughs> so, and the whole book is filled with passages like that, just different versions of what is this um, state. And yet, that can sound um, inaccessible or far off or to use an American term, highfalutin, <laughs> right? It can, sound, it can sound like that. And, and yet, I think as we saw last time, probably most of us have had something like this quality of an awareness that is um, resting and that's not there in the ordinary way. And maybe I can, maybe I can go back to those, um, you know, to, the, to understand those passages by, by saying that what is characteristic of this extraordinary mind? I think that um, in a way it is beyond the ordinary structures and presuppositions of experience. In a way, a lot of our, most of our lives are led because we're basically pragmatically orienting ourselves to objects and things in order to get things done, to meet our needs, to talk with people, to have meetings, to plan, to do this. And there are a whole lot of ordinary assumptions which make sense in that context of getting things done. It makes things to give objects names, right? If you want to know where your car is when you leave, it really makes sense to remember the shape, to give it a name, to have a light. We don't have license plates for the purposes of spiritual awakening. <laughs> you know? We have, we, have, and we have all these ways of organizing the world, essentially for pragmatic reasons, and they make sense in that context. What is being questioned here is whether they're ultimately, they, they really ultimately refer to the deepest nature of things, or whether they're more pragmatic and there for certain purposes. And the suggestion is being made that a lot of our core ways of organizing things are there for pragmatic reasons and maybe what we are calling ordinary mind, but that when we look more deeply and when we go to a deeper level of mind, it's possible to go beyond them. And that more so, not only possible, 
but going beyond them can touch into a deeper freedom. And so what are those structures? Well, first of all, there's the structure of self. There's the way in ordinary experience we, ha- we have it organized around a sense of um, I'm here, others are there, I want to manipulate experience to give myself pleasant experiences and to avoid unpleasant experiences. And I think there's a self and it's very clearly demarcated from others and it's the center of my reality. Is that right? <laughs> okay. Does that kind of make sense of how we organize experience a lot? Okay. okay. So that's being questioned. Okay. And it's said that that may be primarily something there for pragmatic reasons, but we kind of buy into it, right? And what the Buddha is saying, we buy into it, and to some extent, to a significant extent, it can cause suffering. So we actually, in this, ex- if you look to those passages, there's not really a sense of self. And may- actually, maybe I'm thinking, I'm, I'm um, kind of talking to myself in terms of a sequence. Maybe it's good to look at the ordinary experiences before saying more, because I think we all have had experiences which go way beyond self. And, and I think to have this be more ordinary, I think is very helpful. So um, last time I was looking at those kind of experiences, which actually are quite a bit like the ones that I read from the, the Buddha or the Thai forest tradition or the Tibetan tradition, or we could have gone to many other traditions, you know, to, to, um, to look to that, you know. And I know for myself, I was a student of um, the great scholar and teacher Houston Smith, whose life work was to see how something like Extraordinary Mind is found in all spiritual traditions and is actually, when you cut through the different doctrines, the experience is actually, for him, it was actually the same or very, very similar. So that's been something that has been important for me in in working with him. And I, I also, some of you know, I once did a book on Ken Wilber, the psychologist who has very similar ideas. So it's kind of... So I'm referring to Buddhist traditions, but we could go to other traditions. But it's also very much there in our everyday experiences. So, so I, we were looking at, exper- are, do, do we have experiences that are in a sense beyond the ordinary self, beyond uh, ordinary sense of time? And I was looking to experiences that we might have where the ordinary sense of identity seems to shift into something larger. I was referring maybe to experiences in the natural world have we been in the natural world when we seem to, the ordinary sense of I'm here, I'm manipulating the world, objects are there, seems to fall away and we have much more of a sense of being in this interdependent, vast nature. Who has had something like that kind of experience in the natural world at times? Maybe, maybe fleeting, right? Maybe wonderful fleeting and um, maybe even a little scary, right? And, and maybe others have had it more regularly. You know, it's um, um, in some traditions that would be the basis for spiritual practice, as I think in many indigenous traditions. And so we can have those experiences often being immersed in art or music. You know, and um, artists and musicians often report those kind of experiences. Has anyone here had those kind of experiences more in the artistic or musical world where 
could be, I think it could be listening. It could be listening as well as performing. That we're somehow taken into something beyond ourselves, into a kind of awareness. And what's interesting about both of these is that we might, both of these examples so far, is that the ordinary, almost like requirements of everyday life are suspended to some extent. You know, it's not, we don't have the same demands and there's a chance for consciousness to go somewhere else. So that's interesting. You know, it's like, so it, it sometimes takes that kind of what we might call a more protected situation, like meditation or certain moments in nature or art or music. I think the same things occur um, sometimes in sports, as I mentioned last time. It's quite interesting. You know, I brought in the book of a friend of mine who wrote a book called Playing in the Zone, Exploring the Spiritual Dimensions of Sports. Um, and I, I thought I would just read a passage or two. Um, this is from a Russian weightlifter, Yuri Vlasov. Some of you may have remember him from the Olympics. He said this, and, and this book is full of reports of extraordinary mind appearing at certain very peak moments in sports. At the peak of tremendous and victorious effort, while the blood is pounding in your head, all suddenly becomes quiet within you, he said. Everything seems clearer and wider than ever before, as if great spotlights had been turned on. This kind of a luminous quality, right? Um, At that moment, you have the conviction that you contain all the power in the world, that you are capable of everything, that you have wings. There is no more precious moment in life than this. He calls it the white moment. And you will work very hard for years just to taste it again. It's coming from sports. And there's another passage I love where the great basketball player Bill Russell talks about very similar experience. Maybe I'll just read this because I like it so much. Let me see if I can find this. People know who Bill Russell is? People know he's something the greatest basketball player who ever lived, you know. Came from, didn't he come from um, the Bay Area? He played at USF. He played at USF. Okay, so local, local hero. Okay. And every so often, he said, a Celtics game would heat up so that it became more than a physical or even mental game and would be magical. That feeling is difficult to describe, and I certainly never talked about it while I was playing. Interesting. When it happened, I could feel my play rise to a new level. At that special level, all sorts of odd things happened. It was almost as if we were playing in slow motion. During those spells, I could almost sense how the next play would develop and where the next shot would be taken from. Even before the other team brought the ball in bounds, I could feel it so keenly that I'd want to shout to my teammates, it's coming there except that I knew everything would change if I did. My premonitions would be continually correct. And I always felt then that I not only knew all the Celtics by heart, but also all the opposing players and that they all knew me. So beyond ordinary self, right? There have been many times in my career when I felt moved or joyful, but these were the moments when I had chills pulsing up and down my spine. So there's that sense of, you know, we can see some of the ordinary constructions aren't there. Sense of self, we have more of a sense of interdependence there. You know, I was also thinking this also occurs interpersonally sometimes when there is a deep sense of love or connection with another and the ordinary boundaries leave, right? How many can relate to that? 
Yeah. No. Or um, maybe there are others, but those are some of the paradigmatic examples, I think, of just very ordinary ways of tasting that. And I also mentioned last time that one of my first tastes that I remembered, or that I remembered as an adult, probably were in that state a lot as kids, I think, sometimes. I suspect that. But was when I was in college and totally immersed in like hours and hours and hours of writing and something shifted in my consciousness. So I think that there are these, that it's not so inaccessible. That's what I'm pointing to. But it requires, it does seem to require that we have the ability, at least initially, to shift out of that uh, highly pragmatic, got to do it, here I am, and ordinary reality manipulating things type of mentality. And so what's characteristic of that extraordinary mind? A different sense of self, or maybe beyond any sense of self. Could be more of a sense of interdependence, or it could be simply that the sense of self doesn't arise in that, or in that large, expansive awareness. That's, that's my experience. That it really just doesn't arise in the same way. Uh, at least we'll say in the same way. There's a different sense of time that um, there's not the usual structuring of time. I'm oriented toward the past and the future, more of that present centeredness. Very significantly, we're not so fixated on objects. We're not so much structured by here's an object here, I'm here, there's that object. But there's more of a sense of maybe like we experienced when we were contemplating impermanence, that there are things arising and passing, sensations, things we see, the senses working, but we don't fixate so much on objects. And actually, this is related to developmental psychology, because if you study that, you know that we actually had to learn to construct objects. We don't somehow come into the world and there's a table here, a knee here, and so forth. That is a construction and a learning. And what happens sometimes in these extraordinary states is we deconstruct what was initially constructed. And we see in a different way. We may open up to a world of pulsating energy, something like almost like what Bill Russell was talking about. But ordinary objects don't have the same... Um, what? Um, um, they're not there in the same way. There, there, there's something else occurring, and yet there are appearances. There are things occurring, we're experiencing, but it's not in the ordinary way. And very significantly, there's not the, the same conceptual structuring of things. You know, we're not approaching experience primarily through everything going through concepts and language, that we label this, label that. There's a different opening up, and yet there's experience, and yet there are phenomena, and yet the senses are working. It's not blankness. It's not nothingness. And I think, again, if we can relate to those ordinary or everyday, not everyday, but those maybe um, experiences we may have had that are not necessarily meditative experiences that we've had, again, in nature or art, music, sports, deep emotional connection, and so forth. I think we can maybe relate to that. So, last part I want to uh, explore is how do we cultivate extraordinary mind? We may have had a taste of it. We may, like like, um, 
Yuri Vlasov says, we may have had a taste and want nothing more than to get back there. Or I think, I remember there was a passage, who was it from, um, it's a local author, she said, why shouldn't we teach in our schools that we should, that the most valuable thing is to experience love and have it be around as long as possible? Why aren't, isn't our education system set up for that? <coughs> well, in a way, the educational system that one would get when this extraordinary mind is at the center does do that. It says, let me access this quality of depth, of love, of awareness, and let me find how to access it more and more and how to have it be more and more there in my life. And that's, again, that is totally the intention of of this practice, of why we're here. So how to do that? There are two ways to look at it. I'm going to talk briefly about one of them, and then next time I think talk more probably about the first way and a lot about the second. The first way is that we develop towards this extraordinary mind through practicing with ordinary mind. And the second way is that we go right to extraordinary mind. We invoke it in various ways. That's what I'm going to focus on next time. It's a little bit of a carrot if you want to learn about that. We'll do some experiential work next time. But the... um, but the kind of the good the good news is is that basically our ordinary practice inclines us towards extraordinary mind, and we can see when we look at our extraordinary practice or our ordinary practice how it actually is a training that lets us look very very carefully at our ordinary constructions of self, of time, of how we objectify the world of um, how, we, how we make our constructions, of language, uh, how we use concepts, and so forth, how we tell stories to ourselves, how we get caught in narratives. That's what our ordinary practice is. When we cultivate mindfulness, we are starting that work. And so I would say, I'm, I was thinking of this, and I was thinking that there are um, two kinds of foundational practices that we do with what I'm calling ordinary mind, that move us towards extraordinary mind. So the first set of foundations, these are really the initial foundations, are to get our practices going. The initial foundations are to learn mindfulness, develop loving kindness, live ethically, ground ourselves in ethics, cultivate um, the body so that it can be open, more open sometimes might be through qigong or yoga, or um, having the body become alive, uh, developing on compassion and so forth. And we, I think that's our familiar practice. That's what we do. All of this is um, giving us the tools that we need in a meditative context to move towards extraordinary mind. Then I was thinking of the further foundations are bringing those practices into into more developed forms so that we actually can see that we are actually deconstructing a lot of the ordinary structures. That's a lot of what we do in our practice. It takes time, it's slow, but that we are 
you know, we could mention what happens further once we have those tools developed. Some, you know, and a lot of this happens right initially when we're practicing. We start seeing what are my habitual patterns of mind? What are the, what are the ways my mind works? What are my own typical patterns of reactivity? What kind of stories do I tell myself? What are my core recurring um, concepts, maybe that I have of myself, that I have of others, and so forth? We see particularly where the patterns are connected with reactivity. Again, what I'm calling suffering, where we push away in in an almost compulsive way, or we grab hold in a semi-compulsive way. We study all of those. And the model that we explored in the guided meditation is a very helpful model for really deconstructing some of our main forms. And again, it's not deconstructing means that we, it's, it's not that we give up the ordinary structures, but we give up sort of the, the idea that these are ultimate. Do you get that distinction? We wouldn't want to give up the ordinary structures because we need to get back home and find our car in the parking lot, right? You know, cutting through the structure of self doesn't mean driving away in someone else's car. Okay. So, so, our, so what we do is we, we don't so much give up the ordinary constructions, but we give up the unconscious belief that these are the ultimate structures of reality. That's what we do. And so we do that in our practice. So we look at our habits. The model that we explored in the guided meditation is a model that's a very fundamental one. It's called the model of the three characteristics of phenomena in Buddhist teaching. And it's, it's asked us to look at um, how we tend to make objects permanent and tune into impermanence. How we tend to... Um, because of our reactions and our suffering, we tend to get caught in habitual patterns, asks us to look at suffering. So first we look at impermanence and permanence, then we look at suffering, and then we look at our sense of self. You know? And so the meditations on each of these three areas are fundamental practices that we can continue to do that have the long-term aim of letting us see through the ways that we hold these as ultimate in a way. And so we can just hang out, as we were doing in the guided meditation, with impermanence, just to notice, oh, here's, um, here's a, an experience of um, pressure in my connection with the chair. Oh, there's a sight that's coming to mind. Oh, there's that. I'm looking at this. And just to notice how one thing flows to another. Oh, I'm thinking about lunch. Uh, oh, I'm thinking about um, the weekend, you know, and the thoughts come and go, and we just notice them passing. And what that will tend to do, some of that it will tend when we start having that experience more and more on a uh, kind of a faster level, we start actually moving in our meditations beyond being fixated by objects. So it's not so much my knee anymore, it's the sensations. And one sensation leads to another. And we live more in a world of sensations and passing thoughts. And we can begin to see how we start forming permanent objects. We can study that. So I'm compacting a lot here. 
then we can also start to see our patterns of suffering. We can see where the mind is reactive, basically where we get fixated, where we hang on to something, we push away. This is where we are taking things as ultimately real. And we start uh, to be able, when we study all the moments where we suffer, we can notice them and then we have the potential to let go some. And just, you know, instead of getting really fixated on my unpleasant sensations in my knee, which is really about me, I'm suffering, woe is me, why did I do this meditation, dancing would be better, you know, and so forth, go into stories, we just let go and experience the sensations. And that tends to um, release certain fixated views about self, about me, about suffering, and so forth, about identity. And then the last aspect is also related to self. We just study where the sense of self is really thick. This is a lifetime exploration. But as we do that, something becomes less solid. The usual constructions of self, objects, time, language, concepts become less solid. It can be a little bit disorienting at times. That's, that's true. So it's important to keep, you know, your knowledge, keep grounded in certain ways because there are periods when one is doing this, and I think we all know this because we've all given up former ideas, right? We've all done that and come to a new way of seeing things and we know that the transition can sometimes be a little bit precarious, right? That's just the way development occurs. Yeah, and so this, this uh, next time I'm going to talk, I'll probably talk a little bit more about that movement. But you can see how with our ordinary practice, looking at the constructions, at the ordinary constructions, they start to have less power. This is an entryway, entryway into extraordinary mind. It's the deconstruction, the sort of the weakening of the hold of our ordinary fixations starts to open us up more to extraordinary mind. And that's one, that's really the major way that development occurs. You know, there are also ways of going right into extraordinary mind, but typically in most traditions, those actually require as presuppositions what we've just been talking about. You know, one has to have those capacities or else it would just be fleeting. Unless one's done that other work, it's fleeting. And so this is, I hope, um, a map. You know, it can give a map, one map, of where our practice is going and saying that what we're doing just, just by sitting with sensations in the knee can have the horizon of what I'm calling extraordinary mind. It's on the same map. So it's kind of good news, you know, that these beautiful, almost exalted states are on the same map as what we're doing in a very ordinary way, watching the mind come back over and over again. It's the same journey. And it opens up when we have worked enough, practiced enough, it opens up uh, more and more towards what we're calling extraordinary. So let's just sit for a moment.
think thank you so much for your attention and could say that if, to continue this kind of practice, one way to do it is to look, is to use those three characteristics and really work with them in your meditation, much like we did. At the end of the sitting, work. And you might do one at a time for you know, a few days. Really work with noticing impermanence. Really work with noticing any moments of suffering. Really work with any moments of, um, in which the self gets more thick than at other times self-consciousness or this, I really want this. Again, it's not to say that's bad, but just it's really to study it. Maybe time for one or two questions. Yeah, please. Thank you. Um, See if I can put this into words. In um, in the the practice for me um, right now is the dropping down into a place that I would call my heart. Yeah. And what happens is that the mind simply is is not there. It kind of disappears. Yeah. And then there's a dropping down and then there's an opening up of of the heart and there's there's a there's a real sweetness there. Yeah. And at the same time there's um a wee bit of fragility. Like yeah. Then my mind comes and says, well, how long is this going to last? Yeah. You know, can you really walk with this? Yeah. Um, and so it feels to me as though our true nature is is actually is in our, is in our heart. Yeah. And doesn't, and the mind simply complicates everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so really a question, I mean, I, I, I interpret that partly as a question of language, you know, but it's really, you know, based on observations of noticing, really holding experience with compassion, with care, with love, and that it seems like um, what you're calling the mind, which I might sort of rephrase as thinking, okay, yeah. okay, is not present so much. And, it really brings out a really important point, you know, which which um, is about the use of language. That uh, the usual word that's translated as mind, actually from the Asian traditions, really actually covers both mind and heart. What we call both mind and heart. But I was using, I was talking about extraordinary mind, not meaning thinking. Okay, so it's more it's more connected with awareness. And ultimately, that awareness is integrated, includes all parts of ourselves. So it has to be very grounded in the heart and include the capacity for thinking. But it's like in some of the passages I read, it's not primarily about thinking. So I was using mind more and talking about extraordinary mind more in the sense of maybe awareness and intuitive wisdom, but not our ordinary um, day-to-day thinking. But that can occur. And, and that um, the does, is that helping to clarify? Very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, um, maybe last one, and then we'll then well, we'll I go. I just wanted to add that your description of extraordinary consciousness. I hear when I do crisis work, um, the firefighters and and uh, police at nine eleven. Yeah. In those moments when they're going in to save people, in moments of heroism, yeah. I work with the military, and when they're going to defuse, you know, bombs and save people, it's it's 
kind of that place as you were talking about. They report. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so people in doing what we would call heroic activities, police, firefighters, and military, maybe defusing a bomb or a suspected bomb, that they report experiences like this, right? That there's something that goes beyond themselves. And um, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I, I, it's really important to me that these experiences are accessible. We've all had them. The question is, how to have more access to them, how to understand them in relationship to our day-to-day practice. I think that's quite important. We don't sort of want to grab hold of these extraordinary, that doesn't work, right? But to know that they're on the same map, I think is really, really crucial. And and, And to understand that conceptually by seeing that when I meditate, I'm actually weakening the hold of my habitual thoughts. That's, I think, pretty easy to see. Right? And, I'm, and I'm also you know, having a different relationship to time where I'm more in the present. I'm letting go of some ordinary structures. That we can see, I think, pretty clearly. And we're doing that all the time. So we're, but actually having this focus can actually give a little more energy sometimes to our practice to actually say, let me do these meditations with impermanence, with really tracking any moment of suffering. That's what, that's what these guided meditations are inviting us to do. Have your radar out for any moment of suffering and study it. Not so much to get rid of it, but really study it, what it's, what it's about. And then again, as I was saying earlier, when we've studied it enough, then we have the freedom to say, I don't need to go there. But we have to be clear that that motivation is not out of repression or suppression or I'm aversion, I'm scared of it, but more out of wisdom. You know, I've done it a thousand times, I've looked at it a hundred or a thousand times, and I don't need to go there. But to know that this is all on the same map, so I think I'll look more at that, but this is something we can do next time that really can give some energy and have that sense of the movement toward what I'm calling extraordinary awareness or extraordinary mind be um, not so far away, be closer. You know, as we are looking at um, impermanence, we're looking at any moment of suffering, or notice when is the self thick? When does it get thick? Like when you're leaving here and in Fairfax at the light, there's a driver with a cell phone who causes you to be delayed for five seconds and self becomes thick <laughs> at that moment sometimes. So study that, study that. Maybe some of you can use your cell phones for others. <laughs> just, just joking. Um, Anyway, so thank you so much for your attention. We'll just close with the traditional dedication of merit. And then I'll continue with this next time, particularly bringing in invoking extraordinary awareness through some different techniques. So being with what's helpful and setting your intention maybe for the next week in regard to your practice. knowing that we practice both for ourselves and others. May the fruits of our practice be of benefit to ourselves and others. And may we always remember that connection between our own practice and being of benefit to others.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.